Hi, and welcome to episode 18 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. This is Cricket Lou with my co-host, Matt Larson. Hi there. And uh, Matt, we're, we're finally back. I think this was uh, perhaps even a, lo- a longer hiatus than <laughs> the last one. Oh, no, say it wasn't so. <laughs> well, it's summertime, or, or, or I guess just uh, approaching the end of summer. So uh, I'm, I'm sure you, you've been busy, and, uh, and I've been busy, so we should, we should give ourselves a break. It is, a, after all, a, a pro bono effort. Yeah, and you know, it's been so long, I don't even remember the date of the last one. Had the root been signed? I think so. I think just. Um, yeah, I think just. So it was after July 15th. We know that much. Yeah. I was I was thinking earlier today when, um, you know, anticipating recording, I was thinking, what kind of person submits a question <laughs> to a podcast that that uh, uh, answers questions on such an irregular basis? I mean, it, it would take a, a special kind of person to, to have a question that they could wait up to, say, a month <laughs> for an answer. Month if they're lucky. Uh, exactly. If theirs happens to be the one that's chosen. All right. Well, speaking of questions, I believe there are a couple in the mailbag. There are. So uh, let me let me reach into the mailbag. I don't have anything to rustle. Do you have a, you have anything to rustle over there? Uh, this sounds like a mailbag. Does it? How's this sound? Oh, good. Very good. Very good. Oh, all right. Excellent. <laughs> and uh, the first question comes from. Uh, Lane Besselink, I think it's, it's Lane, maybe, uh, Besselink. He says, hello, Mr. DNS. Earlier today, I noticed Dan Kaminsky mentioned on Twitter that I believe he and uh, colleagues had thought of an interesting way to integrate uh, a part of DNS curve into DNSSEC. Um, he linked to a presentation he gave. Uh, and he says, um, I presume they noticed how much effort it takes for the DS records to be pushed to the parent domains for DNSSEC. So they used the idea from DNS curve where the name of the name server has an embedded public key. That is their way of publishing the DS record. It would mean that it would be a lot easier for all parties involved to speed up the adoption of DNSSEC. Well, the question for Mr. DNS is obviously, what do you think about this? Is this a good idea? Have a nice day. So, well, how how nice that he put the tagline "Have a nice day." <laughs> very very nice. Yes, indeed. The Dutch, very the, the uh, it's a fine people. I think the politest people in all of Europe. Really, wow. I think. Well, I, I like the Dutch a great deal. I like the Danes a great deal too. And and well, actually, I, there's almost nobody there I don't like. But uh, but yeah, the, the, I I I think of the Dutch as being sort of similar to. Uh, to Americans in disposition. I could, I could see that. You know, I, I buy that. One of our one of our good friends just got back from uh, spending a couple of months in Amsterdam. He was working for, um, uh, I think it was a TV, a TV company. He's he, it's, it's actually uh, Paige's best friend's son who was over there for a couple of months, and he really enjoyed it and really had a great time um, living in Amsterdam and you know hanging out with uh, with with the Dutch. Someday, maybe, I'll live in the Netherlands for a while. I think yeah. that'd be a blast. Yeah, yeah, he really enjoyed it. So what about uh, Mr. Besselink's question? Yes, well, the issue is that uh, if you are doing DNSSEC for your zone and you're signing it, you have to get the DS record for one of your keys, usually your key signing key, up to your parent. And how do you do that? And 
for many, many people, you know, certainly not everybody, but uh, there's an awful lot of uh, domains in .com and .net and the various other, um, let's call them TLDs in the ICANN world, and they have this model where there are registrars that interact with registrants and and take would take their DS record and pass it on to the registry. So there's this other entity in the middle. If you're the zone administrator, uh, there's somebody between you and the registry where that DS record needs to go, and that somebody is your registrar. Right. Now, now, granted, that's not not in all cases, but even if we look at the country code uh, top-level domains, uh, even if there's not a registrar in there, there's still somebody you have to interact with. Maybe you interact directly with the registry. And the point here, I think, is that this is a new thing. For years and years and years, everybody's uh, been used to the idea of the typical kinds of changes so far that you've needed to submit, namely changing name servers, um, changing IPs for name servers, changing the number of name servers for your zone and so on. But mm -hmm. you know now this is, there's this new thing, the DS record. And what we're finding is that uh, this is going to be a change. Uh, so not only if a registry implements DNSSEC, they have to go to all the trouble to sign the, the zone and, and you know everything involved with that, uh, but the people, the registrars, will have to also change their system so they can accept DS records from their customers and send them onto the registry. And, uh, you know, what, what happens if the registrars don't want to do that? Right, right. And what I've heard anecdotally is that, uh, you know, even though there are a fair number of registries that run uh, top-level zones that, that are signed, there are relatively few registrars that have any capacity to, to accept DS records and, and the like, right? That's true. It's, it's very early. I mean, VeriSign has made the decision for .com and .net that we're not going to uh, test and certify registrars for DNSSEC uh, support. In other words, they won't have to uh, do a little qualification and, and get a gold star by their name or anything. Mm -hmm. um, I know other uh, registries are handling that differently. I, well, I can't remember if it's Affilius or Newstar. One of them uh, is is doing that. I I don't I don't want to say because I can't I just can't remember I don't mm -hmm. want to guess which is which, uh, so I don't know the number. But you're right at this at this point uh, because there are relatively few uh, TLDs signed, there are relatively few registrars, and so yeah I guess finally getting back to the question here uh, the the meat of the question, uh, Dan Kaminsky proposed and I I saw him deliver some slides on this at uh, the ICANN meeting in Brussels over the summer. Uh, he's got this proposal, you know, which is very clever, just as the idea that Dan Bernstein came up originally is, is very clever, which is uh, use the name of the name server for your zone or name servers, which otherwise is not doing anything other than being a descriptive name. You know, what, what's everybody named their name servers? NS1, NS2, and so on. Right. You know, instead, make that uh, encode the key into the name of your name servers, or in this case, not encode the key, but encode the DS record, which is a cryptographic hash of a key. And the idea then would be that the registry would look, well, let me, let me back up. The, regist the registrant, so the end user who signed uh, his or her zone, uh, would take the DS record, would, would change the name of their name servers with their registrar, which of course is something that every registrar supports today. 
Uh, so the registrant would change the name of the name servers with their registrar to encode the DS record in the name. So now they'd have these ugly looking uh, name server names mm -hmm. and the registrar would do the usual thing and pass that on to the registry and the registry would look at that and go, aha, look at these specially encoded names that look like garbage, but I recognize them as actually being a DS record encoded in there and therefore I will extract the DS record and put it in the zone on the registrant's behalf and it basically passed through the registrar. The registrar could be oblivious, uh, DNSSEC oblivious anyway, and, and not have to be uh, involved in this transaction. Oh, interesting. I, I thought, um, I, I, in fact, I was, I was getting a little hung up on it because I was thinking, well, are they going to sign the NS records? <laughs> uh, do the, the NS records, uh, in fact, don't get signed, do they? Well, they get signed in the child, but not, right, in, but the not in the parent. Yeah, so they'd have to do that extraction and then actually s sort of synthesize the DS record and then sign that. I see. Right, right. So that, that's the idea. And I, I think in certain cases that would work. But the issue we have uh, in at, at least in the ICANN accredited world of registrars, which is, uh, you know, where I find myself every day. And, and that, so that's my immediate frame of reference. You know, there, there are already, um, you know, rather complicated uh, business agreements that govern the interaction between uh, registrant and registrar and then registrar and registry. And this is something that, you know, because it's trying to get around the registrar, you know, it, it just wouldn't fly from a business perspective. So though it's very clever technically, there are any number of uh, business issues that would make this just completely unworkable without some significant changes. Well, I I as far as the technical end of things go, I mean, uh, there are often an awful lot of zones that only have two name servers, right? Yes, the average is very close to two when you look at the, you know, well, we're coming up on 100 million names in .com and .net combined. Yeah. I I'm just thinking, are, aren't there occasions when you want to have maybe more than two DS records? Yeah, possibly. Like, in, in fact, you probably want two right now you because ds is a is a hash of a key and the ds record itself supports sha1 hashes and sha256 hashes right so for maximum support even if you have one key you probably want two ds records i mean it, it seems to me that that particular scheme limits you to you know uh, no more ds records than you actually have ns records right and in a rollover I, you'd be you'd be you'd be in a, in a difficult situation, right? I mean, if you had two DS records, one for SHA-1, one for SHA-2, and you were in a rollover or you were, you know, pre-publishing uh, uh, KSK or, or something like that, I, I don't understand how that would work. Yeah. And there's another issue that's sort of part technical and part um, business slash legal, which is when the registry puts that DS record in and signs it, that's the statement to the world that this child zone uh, is signed and you should expect it to be signed with this key you, you know you better find this key and build build your chain of trust with the key that that ds record is a hash of mm -hmm. so that's a pretty significant change for the child zone to make and that's a pretty important and wide-ranging assertion that the parent makes so you don't want that made you know you don't want that ds record in the parent and signed until you are 100 percent absolutely ready for it in the child and so uh -huh. what scares me is the idea that somebody could be playing around and change their name server name without mm -hmm. fully realizing the repercussions. DS record gets put in, 
you know, boom, they drop off the air because then validators start to think they're insecure. Right, exactly. If if they inadvertently chose uh, a name for their name servers that happened to be a legal encoding for a DS record under the scheme, right? Well, yes, that'd be sort of the worst case scenario. I, I'm just sort of thinking of somebody who uh, just had trouble coordinating the timing or, mm. um, yeah. you know, the fact that there's not this explicit, uh, you know, presumably the way registrars uh websites are going to be you know it'll be pretty clear you know yeah i want my ds record you know click the button uh, yes i'm really sure you know there's not that explicit action that the registrant takes uh you know i really don't like the idea there, there's too many there's too many assumptions here in the scheme for me to be comfortable all right well i think i think we've answered the question at least uh, as to mr dns's opinion <laughs> of that particular proposal yeah all right well, and uh, let me go on to the, the next question in the mailbag. Uh, this is from Josh Baverstock. Is that how you say his name? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, one, of our, one of our former SEs at, uh, at Infoblox and now over at uh, Riverbed, I believe. Okay. So he says, hello again, Mr. DNS. H have we answered a question of his previously? Well, we have. We have. I, uh, or at least he submitted one. I don't know that we oh. answered it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, anyway, so hello again, Mr. DNS. Why are location records considered a failure? Was it technical reasons or commercial or legal or privacy or all of the above? It appears to be a good idea, yet the market seems to have decided otherwise. Should we, should we stop there or talk maybe about the uh, talk about location records before we go on to the second part of this question? I guess we should, yeah. So, so a location record uh, was a record that boy do you remember the rfc it was proposed in i want to say it was I have like no idea. 18 to 1700 1800 something like something like well, there's that. more there's more than one right which which one are you talking about uh loc yeah wasn't there some predecessor to that that i mean the loc record is not used at all but some predecessor that was even less used than the unused <laughs> loc record <laughs> well I, I just looked it up thanks to google it's 1876 is the loc record uh but um i guess I guess Josh is is uh, probably right in calling it a a, a failure. Um, basically, the 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 LOC record was a means of of specifying, if I remember correctly, the latitude, longitude, and altitude that uh, corresponded to a particular domain name. Um, and that domain name didn't have to be the domain name of a host; it could be the domain name of a, a, a zone, even or a, you know something something else. It was it was. Uh, kind of a, a general purpose construct that way. And then at the end, I think there was a, um, there was like a, I don't remember whether it was a radius or a diameter, but it was sort of a, 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 a fudge factor, if you will. So you could say, you know, within, uh, you know, within tolerance of, you know, 100 meters or, or a kilometer or whatever, in case you didn't want to publish your, you know, latitude, longitude, and altitude to such a precision that, uh, you know, somebody could launch a cruise missile and uh, guide it to its destination with your LOC record. Well, and that was also back in the day when uh, when the, the GPS system still had the error introduced. Was it? Wow, selective availability, I believe they called it. Yes, that's I couldn't I couldn't have pulled that, but I now that you say it, I, I remember it. Yeah, and I, I don't remember what the error was. It was, uh, you know, on the order of several meters, I believe, right? Oh yeah, I think it, it was even farther than that from a practical standpoint if you had a you know if you had a portable gps receiver you weren't really able to uh to determine 
you know, <laughs> which road you were on, <laughs> for example. I think turning off select avail- availability, thank you, Bill Clinton, uh, was was what sort of enabled us to have, um, you know, the current current crop of, um, uh, you know, handheld and, and uh, you know, automobile-based navigation systems. And the world was never the same. Never was. Yeah, so the the look records were sort of, uh, I think they're kind of a solution in search of a problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. um, And and we we should probably, yeah, I mean, maybe we should get to the the next um, part of the question, because the next part of Josh's question sort of uh, suggests what he might think that they're an answer to. Yes, so I will continue. Uh, Josh says, I'm aware of Google's recent proposed enhancement to assist recursive servers in passing along information about their client or client's point of presence. The purpose being to assist in geolocation in situations where a client uses a recursive server that is geographically distant from it. So it will be able to have a content delivery network like Akamai direct the server towards an ideal location that is near the client, not the server. Uh, and he means recursive recursive server. Right. When I read about this, it made me think a location record for the IP returned via Google's proposal would be useful, with the IP being either the client itself or the client's subnet or the client's internal uh, or internet point of presence. I understand there's a big difference between geographical and topological location, plus a big difference between the client's location and the client's internet pop location. So that's sort of, uh, and then I guess he, he winds up uh, you know, while he's on the subject, what's Mr. DNS's position on Google's proposal? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, Josh Josh seems to understand what the difference between uh, geographical and topological location is, but maybe that's something we should spend at least a little bit of time talking about, because I think it has has a real bearing on the utility of something like the the LOC record, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least at least hair splitters, the hair splitters among us, and basically anybody who does internet protocol engineering seems to be a (laughs) hair splitter, they would say, well, you know, if I can tell that you're in San Jose, California, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that I can tell which of the, you know, 10 replicas of this web server uh, is the best one to serve, uh, you know, to to, to serve you, because I don't know the route that your packets are going to take out to, you know, any one of these particular instances. Right. It's uh, much more important that whoever is making that decision know topologically, you know, where are you in San Jose? Whose network are you on? And, and you know, what, uh, what other networks are you near? Who do they peer with? What are their arrangements? You know, there's all kinds right. of, of voodoo that goes into Internet routing that determines topologically uh, the importance of your location. Right. I, I like to use, when just discussing this with people, I like to use HP as an example, because when we were at HP, we had this, uh, you know, huge pipe to uh, the Internet. Well, at least in those days, it was a huge pipe to the Internet from Palo Alto to Stanford. And then we had, uh, I don't know, a few other sort of, um, you know, smaller pipes to uh, to different places. But, you know, what that meant was that if you were in, uh, you know, an HP division in Japan and were trying to route something to... Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, some some web server in uh, in Asia. You'd probably have to come all the way across the Pacific to uh, to Palo Alto, <laughs> and uh, you know, cross over to the the public internet there, and then go back across the Pacific to uh, the web server in Asia. At least in, at one yeah. point, many years ago, that was the case, right? 
that absolutely was how it was. I want to say that there were one, two, three, four. There were four, four connections to the internet when you and I were there, and they were all in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, if you'd had the choice, you know, um, of being directed to a web server that was in the Bay Area uh, from that, you know, Japanese HP division, or a web server that was in Hong Kong, the the one in the Bay Area was the better choice, actually. Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what this proposal, and, and actually it's not exclusively Google's proposal. They're, they're one of uh, several co-authors on this Internet draft that's proposing this particular idea. Yeah. Should we say anything more about why we think LOC was uh, a failure? Uh, well. I mean, you, you said it was, a, it, it was sort of an answer in search of a question, which I, I agree with. Um, I guess there really wasn't, you know, there wasn't much reason to, to use it, and, and it was also fairly difficult to, to you know, figure out all those information, all of that information, and publish it in an LOC record unless you happen to have a handheld GPS unit, um, and one that would work <laughs> in the computer room or, or, or wherever. Right. I don't think anybody's found the the killer app for storing uh, geographical information, DNS, or more properly, you know, for mapping something that can be encoded as a domain name, whether it's a host a host or something else to its physical location. But I guess if somebody ever comes up with an idea, they do have the look record already there to do it with. I guess the uh, one thing that I'd point out is that within most large organizations or, or even, you know, even medium-sized organizations, uh, you know, the the geographical location of, of something like a host isn't particularly important to you. What you're really more interested in is, you know, what city is it in and, and, What's the what's the site name and uh, what building is it in and what floor of that building and, and things like that things that are meaningful to you but you know you can't express as latitude longitude and altitude. Yeah, that's a real good point. I mean, good heavens, just the you know what rack, what racks it in and, mm-hmm. and what you know where is it in the rack? Uh, you know, it can be hard to find things in a big data center. I speak from personal experience. Right, right, and, and you can't express that in an LOC record at all. You can you can use a text record for that. But uh, LOC is useless there because it's it's constrained to be latitude, longitude, altitude, and you know error or whatever. Yeah. Well, okay, so well I we think that handles this, that. Uh, this Google proposal. Yeah. Yeah. You- well, so the Google proposal is one that uh, I think it uses it uses an eDNS zero, uh, you know, like a new opt record or something in the query, doesn't it? Yeah, it uses one of the, uh, oh, what do they call those things in EDNS there? I think just, just an option, right? Yeah, yeah. I, so I think that's the... Yeah, so it's, I guess the, the idea is that it's supposed to, supposed to jam this option into queries um, so that uh, uh, basically once an authoritative name server receives the query, um, somebody in sort of the line of... of um, uh, queriers, you know, whether it's a, a stub resolver, recursive name server, forwarder, or whatever that's that's touched it, has stamped its IP address in there, and uh, the authoritative name server can sort of uh, determine, um, you know, a, a little bit better the original source of the query rather than just um, rather than only being able to see the uh, source IP address of the sort of the last querier on the path. Right. I, I think the um, use case, as I describe it, that, that they anticipate, and certainly the easiest way to deploy this would, would be that you, know, you wouldn't require uh, stub resolvers to have to put 
their own IP into the query right. in your EDNS zero option because you know that's that's never going to happen. Right. On the other hand, if you could get the recursive name server to do it, you know, there's a, a limited and small number of recursive name server vendors. If you could get them when they receive a query from a stub resolver to slap that uh, that IP or for privacy reasons, you know, the, the slash 24, uh, you know, there's just the network then of the, of the query or, you know, put that in and, and launch the query, then it's really kind of uh, an agreement that only has to take place, uh, you know, by agreement, I mean, understanding of this protocol, it, it only needs to take place between uh, the recursive server and the authoritative server. Right. Although, if you have a if you have a chain of of you know recursive name servers, recursive name server forwarder, forwarder for that forwarder, and so on, then it becomes a little bit tricky. And the it other does, and that's probably in the draft, and I just don't remember. I believe how it is. I believe it is. And there's another wrinkle, and I remember talking to to Sean Leach, who's one of the I believe Sean's one of the co-authors of the draft. And I said, well, what happens if your local recursive name server has an RFC 1918 address? Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, if it stamps 10.0.1 slash 24 in the option, well, that's not very useful to anybody, is it? Yeah, so that'd be like yet another way that NAT devices would have to uh, get involved potentially. I mean, you can just, <laughs> I can just see the, the firewall vendors sort of rubbing their hands together to try to implement and screw up another DNS deep packet inspection. Right, either either that or sort of the next, uh, you know, maybe it's the next name server. If, if there's yet another name server that actually handles the query, that it would have to say, okay, well, that's an RFC 1918 address, or the original recursor maybe just, you know, doesn't stamp it. It's it, it uh, inhibits that if it, if it knows that it's running an RFC 1918 address, and the next name server, um, you know, stamps its its IP address um, on there, but then. It seems to me that the accuracy of any decision that you're making on the basis of that IP address goes down, right? Yeah. So, so it didn't. It just didn't seem, you know, that useful to me. I, w I was, I have to say, somewhat skeptical of it. Yeah, you and a lot of other people. It's gone over, I dare say, rather poorly in the uh, IETF DNS protocol engineering community. Mm -hmm. uh, they look at this as uh, a corner case that really mostly helps out the content delivery networks and the uh, outsourced recursive name server providers because this is really mostly an issue when you use a recursive server that is uh, topologically far away from you. Oh, so, right. You know, so, so, so I guess the argument is that it's, it's open DNS uh, collaborating with, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the CDNs or whatever. Right, or, well, or, or Google with their, with their own recursive server. Right, right. Sure. So there, you know, it's not it's not been well received, and and there's the usual, the usual thing that you see that, that it just makes me crazy when engineers do this, which is the, the whole uh, perfect is the enemy of the good, syndrome, which is oh well if we're gonna do this, you know let's not just put in the, uh, source IP of the query, or let's figure out a generalized way to do this so that we can encode any information we want, and you know, it's like, <laughs> oh deliver me. <laughs> Heaven forbid that we would solve a particular problem, you know, even if it's sort of aesthetically distasteful and a bit of a layer violation, you know, let's just solve it simply. Let's not throw open the floodgates and try to solve it, you know, solve the, the general case. Yeah, it's just another tactic not to do it. Well, probably. Yeah. All right. I think, again, 
Once again, Mr. DNS has beaten an answer into the ground. <laughs> but but has he actually answered the question? Uh, I think so. I think we did all right. Yeah. So, it is uh, the end of the summer. Can you believe it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was telling you before we started recording that, you know, my kids have been back to school for two weeks now, and here it is August 29th. Yeah, no, uh, in uh, in Montgomery County, Maryland, all, I think, geez, I think there's like 140,000 students in this school district. The whole county, uh, for all of our listeners who don't know, Montgomery County, Maryland is uh, adjacent to uh, Washington, D.C. and has, I don't know, Bethesda, Maryland, Rockville, uh, you know, and a, and a bunch of other stuff in it. It's geographically a very large county, and it's all one school system. It's like the 10th largest school system in the country. Wow. Physically largest or, or in terms of the number of pupils? Number of pupils. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say I heard 140,000 students, which is, that's a lot of students. That's enormous, yeah. And anyway, they all go back to school tomorrow. <laughs> so so uh, slow down and uh, keep your eyes open if you're, if you're commuting through Montgomery County. There you go. Yeah. How's the weather been back there? Have you, is, is your heat over? Well, it looked that way. We had a few, uh, few really nice days. And then just like yesterday, it cranked up again, and it was in the 90s today. And, you know, I, uh, I really didn't want to mow yesterday, so I put it off until today, and it was even hotter. So hmm. I just gritted my teeth and did it. We had a, a couple days, um, I guess it was last week, that were really, really hot. Um, you know, one where we broke 100. And the next one stepped down, you know, five degrees or so. And then it went back to normal. And the high was, uh, you know, I think that was Monday, Tuesday. The high on Wednesday was, you know, low 80s. So Breaking it's been... 100 for San Jose, that's that's pretty unusual, isn't it? Well, you know, actually, from what I remember as a kid, you know, Los Gatos and San Jose would break 100 a couple times a summer. Um, you know, but, but for an extended period, you know, you might have a week, for example, where it was in high 90s or over 100. And, and we had nothing like that this this uh, this summer. The summer was abnormally cool. I think it was one of the coolest summers on record here. Well, clearly global warming is a hoax then. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. No, <laughs> I don't believe that's what it means, and I don't want the listener email. <laughs> no, please no. <laughs> yes, we are uh, not we are not global warming naysayers. No, but I don't think we want the. I don't think we want. Uh, 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 e- email from from uh, people who think that global warming is a conspiracy theory, either, right? No, maybe I shouldn't have stepped into that. <laughs> All right. Well, should I take us out? Sure. All right. Well, we'll give our usual thank you for listening this far, and also our usual plea to please send questions. Um, I have to say, as I look at the mailbag, uh, there's not much at the bottom of it. No, so we do not. need your questions to uh, continue answering them on these podcasts. So you can send them to uh, Mr. DNS. That's MRDNS at ask-mrdns.com. And uh, as always, thanks for listening and talk to you next time. Bye-bye.